The El Conservador Radio Show is sponsored by George Rodriguez on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Time for the El Conservador Radio Show with George Rodriguez. George is a constitutional conservative who loves to expose fake news and liberals. Be a part of the show. Call 210-308-8867. And now, El Conservador, George Rodriguez. Howdy, 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 my friends. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas, on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer. Welcome to the show, folks. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This is uh, December the 28th, uh, the last weekend in uh, in 2019. And I mean, I don't know about you folks, but this year has gone by so fast. Uh, it, it just, I can't believe that. Uh, I mean, I just started to learn to uh, write the year 2019 and to say it uh, when all of a sudden we're going to change the year again. So uh, we'll have to see how, how that works out for me. Um, got a great show as usual, my friends. We've got a very, very good show for you. We're going to be talking with, um, we've got three guests, Mr. Jason Jones, who is a border crime expert. He's been on the show lots of times. He's a very good friend. Jason and I are going to be chatting about um, the controversy as to whether or not to declare the, the uh, cartels terrorist organizations or not. There's been a discussion, a very hot, heated discussion in Washington, D.C., uh, among uh, the intelligence community and among the um, uh, law enforcement community as to how to deal with this situation of the of the cartels, the violence, the uh, human smuggling, drug smuggling that's going on that's getting worse and worse. We need to uh, we're going to chat about that because we need to address the problem. We need it needs to be addressed. Jason is of the uh, mindset that the cartels need to be declared terrorist organizations and dealt with in that aspect of it. He'll explain how. We've had other folks uh, discuss the issue uh, and say that, well, you know, uh, if we're going to do that, we're going to need more personnel. We're going to need uh, more equipment. Uh, we're going to need more staff, et cetera, et cetera, and, uh, which I can understand fully. So uh, Jason Jones will be on chatting about that. We also have local activist, uh, Alamo activist, Paul Gescheidel. Paul is, um, has been following, working involved very, very closely in the whole issue of the move, moving of the Alamo Cenotaph, uh, the, uh, the push by the city of San Antonio to move the Alamo Cenotaph, as well as to reimagine what they call reimagine the entire Alamo plan. And uh, to many of us, what that means is that uh, we're going to end up rewriting the history. A lot of the discussion has been to minimize the, uh, the Battle of 1836, because some uh, some folks, some snowflakes, as I'd like to call them, uh, some snowflakes have uh, declared and said that uh, the people involved in the Alamo defense and the defense of the Alamo were uh, slave owners, that they were folks who were uh, not exactly reputable characters. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, mother of uh, Julian and Joaquin Castro went as far as to call them drunks at one point, that they were not worthy uh, to be called heroes. So uh, now there seems to be a definite effort by uh, liberal leftists, professors in particular, to rewrite the history to minimize the Battle of the Alamo because it's viewed as imperial conquest of Mexico. So um, we'll chat with Paul Gescheidel a little bit about that whole situation. Then, of course, uh, I've got uh, I uh, have asked um, uh, my very, very good friend, podcaster, blogger, uh, Silvio Canto to uh, chat with us about the whole situation with uh, 2020 and the messaging by the Democrats. I mean, we've got a big target on our backs here in, here in Texas. The Democrats are going to do everything within their power to uh, to uh, convert, to make Texas blue, so to speak. And uh, we're going to be chatting with uh, with Silvio, whether or not it's potential and uh, the uh, whether or not it's uh, you know something that 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 could happen. Many many of us uh, fear it, but uh, is it a reality? So um, we're going to be chatting with that. And uh, let's uh, let's um, uh, go uh, right now though to our uh, news update items. Let me chat real quick about this whole situation with the um, with the Alamo Cenotaph because it's got a very very, in my opinion, uh, the rewriting of the Alamo history, the battle 
the, the the heroes, et cetera, et cetera. It's got a, very, a, a broader, bigger uh, uh, impact, in my opinion. Um, just uh, I view very, very carefully this whole situation of the claim that um, Texas is occupied Mexico uh, in very, very uh, strong terms. It's a very sinister uh, situation that we've got. Uh, I don't know how many of you know, but the UN, the United Nations, particularly through UNESCO, is involved in the rewriting of the history and in in in, uh, in in coordinating, in consulting with the um, city of San Antonio on how to make uh, the Alamo a more uh, welcoming and a more uh, open uh, site historical site and what they want to do is rewrite the history so that the history doesn't offend anybody literally that's what they've said so that it doesn't offend i'm not sure who's who's going to be offended by it but that's what they want to do uh in that aspect my friends this is the same un this is the same unesco that uh you know uh, that that wants repeatedly has repeatedly tried to obliterate uh uh the state of israel okay and i see a lot of commonality i see i, I see a very very similar situation Recently, there have been attempts in, uh, in, in, by Palestinians, by Arabs, because there, in my opinion, there is no such thing as Palestine, by, by, by Arabs to overrun the, uh, the uh, Israeli border and then to uh, put so many, get so many Arabs into Israel, into the state of Israel, that uh, they can vote, literally, they can vote uh, Israel out of existence. Uh, as long as they can get in there and occupy and and uh, get involved in in, uh, in 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 Israel, they can wreck it from the inside. Well, I see a very very similar situation being attempted in the United States uh, with people trying to overrun the uh, U.S. border. I mean, earlier this year we had people literally trying to run past the uh, the border patrol into the United States. Uh, we continue to see people. Uh, illegally entering on a daily basis, I'm sneaking in, uh, we see a definite effort by uh, leftists in the United States to declare sanctuary communities to protect them. And what uh, this, all this does, my friends, in my opinion, is it, it creates the situation where we are being conquered from within. I mean, there is literally a movement called La Reconquista, the reconquering of the Southwest. There is this mythology and again, it's very similar to the mythology in, 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 in the Middle East, a mythology that there is that Aslan or this mythical homeland of the Aztecs is right here in the, in, in, uh, in the southwestern United States. You know, it's a myth. It's a myth. There is no real uh, proof of it. You know, there is there is no real solid evidence of it. It's a myth. OK, the same thing as that Palestine, whatever that is, is the uh, is the homeland of the Arabs. It wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, uh, in, for years, uh, for decades, for centuries, it was the land that was given to the to to uh, the children of Abraham, and um, Arabs happened to be part of the children of Abraham. So it belongs to them, but it also belongs to uh, to the Jews, and Judea. Judea was the was the land that was that that uh, the Romans uh, that the Romans uh, named on maps. I mean, this is this is a, a, a land that has been in the hands of Jews for, for forever, forever. And now all of a sudden it's a Palestinian homeland. My friends, you know, uh, history myths can be very convenient and history can be very, very politically incorrect. Yes, it can be very annoying. It's inconvenient. What we, um, Texas is no more part of Mexico than Massachusetts is part of England. All righty. There was a revolution. Texas won the, its independence, period. Punto. Se acabó. All right? On the other hand, on the other hand, people are, try, people are trying to politically overrun, politically dominate, politically reconquer this land. Okay? That's their focus. They are anti-American. They uh, think that uh, the United States is nothing more than, than some type of, of imperialist uh, conquering country that has overrun third world people. I mean, you know, folks, cultures, there are good, there are high cultures, there are low cultures. There are people who are smart, there are people who are not. 
And, uh, you know, when, when somebody says, well, we're all equal, we're not all equal. I'm sorry. I hate to say it. You know, I'd like to be 6'2", but I'm not. I'm 5'8". You know, I, uh, I would love to, to be as athletic as J.J. Watt, but I'm not. Okay? So does that mean that I have to, that there, there have to be laws that force J.J. Watt to be equal to me because I cannot be equal to him? I mean, think about it. And this is this is the rea- this is this is what is going on in the mentality and in in the psyche of a lot of these liberals and leftists. They want equality forced on people. Well, it can't be because we are not all equal. It's that simple. Equality is found only in the eyes of the law that the law is applied equally. Other than that, nothing can be applied equally. Economics is not equal. Society is not equal. Athletics is not equal. Nothing is equal. There is nothing. Life is tough, and you got to get over it. That's it's that simple. And there are cultures that are that that were in the Stone Age, and there were cultures that were in the in in the Iron Age, in the Age of Steam, and uh, they got run over. The Stone Age cultures got run over. I mean, it was it was inevitable. It was inevitable. You had the building of the Continental Train. The intercontinental train. There was nothing to compare. There was nothing that compared to it. On the other side, and the, the culture opposing, resisting. So, uh, my friends, you know, it, it, it is very, very disturbing when we hear that uh, somehow Aslan has got to be reconquered, has got to be taken over. You know, you want to live in Aslan, move to Mexico. Move to Mexico. They need all of the help you can give them. And I'm sure that a lot of these liberal, uh, smart liberal leftists could do a lot of good for those folks in their society down there. You know, they could. I invite you to move down there. So anyway, friends, once again, thank you for being with us. I hope that uh, you will support us, that you will continue to support us. We are a, uh, El Conservador is a, uh, a privately funded enterprise political enterprise and because it is privately funded we depend on your donations we depend on your support we are looking always for sponsors we are always looking for donations and don and, and contributions and the reason that we do that is because we do not want to depend on folks who are going to be afraid of being boycotted because we are politically incorrect <laughs> we don't want to depend on that so, my friends, I hope that you will support us. Stay tuned. We're ready to uh, go to our first uh, uh, to our first guest. That's going to be Mr. Jason Jones. So, uh, stick around, my friends. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, on KLUP nine thirty AM radio. The answer. We'll be right back. Hello, El Conservador listeners. If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez, El Conservador, and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you're interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer. And uh, we've got uh, my very good friend, Jason Jones, uh, who is a, an expert on border crime and uh, the cartels. And uh, I wanted to reach out to him because there has been a debate that has erupted. Uh, Jason is one of the foremost, if not the foremost, uh, advocates for designating the uh, cartels as terrorist organizations. And uh, suddenly there's been a debate uh, regarding whether or not that's a good idea. And uh, I wanted to uh, get Jason on so that he could tell us his view. We always talk about what the cartels are doing. 
uh, all the shootings and everything else that's going on down in uh, down in Mexico and the danger to the United States. But what I wanted to do now is ask him about uh, the designation, specifically about the designation for cartels as uh, terrorist organizations. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, let me ask you, Jason, what would be the advantages uh, of the uh, of of the president or the government or any uh, them uh, the cartels being designated ter- terrorist organizations? Yeah, George, as always, first and foremost, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate all the help in 2019 uh, to help get the word out about the cartels and what they're doing to the folks. You've been a great advocate, so thank you for that this year. Um, but to answer your question, and I think it's really the most important question that could probably be asked in regards to crime and how crime is affecting our country right now and what can we do about it to fix it. What the terrorism designation is really going to do is provide, and I I can tell you in pretty much one word, authorities. It's going to get us away from an investigative-only model. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. What it's going to let us do once we have some of these cartels designated as foreign terrorist organizations is first and foremost remove them from the country. Because right now what we have to do is go through an investigative model and through the investigative process, which by design, by design here domestically, it moves very slowly. And we want that when we're talking about investigating our citizens. You know, that's how we make sure that our justice system works correctly. But the first and foremost, it lets us remove them immediately if they're in the country. Second, it denies future access through any legal means, meaning any visa process, anything they want to go uh, utilize to get into the country to live here or to be in the country for whatever reason, legally, it denies that. Third, and, you know, the folks have heard a lot about this since 9-11. It allows us to target their money. Now, yes, you know, and what I mean by that is we've heard from the intelligence community fighting terrorism globally that following the money investigations are extremely important. But what they don't ever tell the folks, and the reason is because mostly it's analysts talking about this, is they don't ever tell the folks the investigative process for going after the money and the speed by which it moves. It's extremely slow. And I can tell you as someone that has done that, um, where it uh, doesn't allow us to move at the speed we need to so they can move those funds out of the banks. And what the terrorism designation does is it lets us move at a much more rapid pace. And it requires U.S. institutions and any bank working with U.S. institutions and requires them to anyone on that is designated as a terrorist organization to give that bank information to the U.S. government as well. So it really lets us go after their money, which is a key, key point in why I'm working so hard to get this designation. The other thing it does is it limits their mobility globally. You know, many of us still believe and think of the cartels as this narco thing, and they're much bigger than that, George. They're operating globally. So this will limit their mobility globally because we can put them on no-fly list just as we do terrorists. And then the final thing that's really big is it allows all entities within what we call the Homeland Security Enterprise to be involved in this, including DOD. So those main five points is what it's going to do. All right, so one of the things, let me ask you this, because obviously the money issue, uh, the cartels differ from the, from the uh, let's say, jihadists, because the jihadists are religious fanatics. They're theology, they're, they, they are theologians, crazy theologians. They are folks who have a a mindset the cartels seem to be more like the mafia they are in it for the money and that's it so going after the money would be very very important uh do you see that uh, that differentiation as being important well i i don't personally but it, it the reason it is looked upon as the ideology being so important is because it allows those who are against designating the cartels, it uses that as a crutch and as, as a sticking point. You know, they say you hear from the counterterrorism enterprise right now, and I will tell you, uh, George, since the president said that we were going to designate these cartels as foreign terrorist organizations, the domestic and global counterterrorism enterprise struck back, and I mean, I, I just can't tell you how busy I've been in the last two weeks 
biting them back. I mean, all the things. Why? I, I don't understand why they would why they would react. What do you think is that reaction about? It's a, it's a money issue, right? It's a follow the money. I mean, you know, they don't want resources and money being diverted away from the counterterrorism uh, okay. thing. I mean, and we've got to be real honest and open. And the reason I get very frustrated with that is because, you know, we as a country, and just like any country, are going to have emerging threats always. It's been 18 years since 9-11. We've been in the world of terrorism, and we're going to be in the world of terrorism for a very long time. But we always have to be available to understand that emerging threats are going to hit our country. And we can't protect an enterprise. The goal is to protect the American people, first and foremost, and this country at any and all means. And we've got to be open and honest about what's happening in Mexico and not try to look at silly ideology as a reason why we don't want to designate them as terrorists. Because it's about what does it take to have success and protect people, both in the United States and in Mexico, because... You know, George, looking at the number of murders that we're having here uh, in Mexico and the gun battles that are just raging at our border, i got to tell you, it's really frustrating for me because those are intelligence failures. You know, we can't have two- and five-hour gun battles with belt-fed machine guns, grenades, grenade launchers, anti-tank weapons occurring on our border. And, and George, on a weekly basis, we're having these things now. It's it's time to look at them for what they are and not for the way we remember them or the way we wish they were. Well, ultimately, ultimately, any organization, whether it's an ideology or whether it's a, a, a money-making uh, venture, any anything that, that is hurting the United States needs to be dealt with, I mean, ultimately, right? It, it does. And, you know, I think, it, again, it's another learning lesson for us. You know, we didn't learn after Pearl Harbor. We didn't learn after 9-11. And now we have these gun battles raging at our borders, which are massive intelligence failures. We, we see our partners in Mexico. And I will tell you, I look at Mexico as partners and great people down there. And it's, it's a shame what is happening in that country. And they need help. But also, you know, we can't allow that to cross into our country. We're seeing deaths from the cartels in the U.S. It's very hit and miss right now because we don't have a system that collects it to really be able to look at it across the United States amongst all states as to how crimes from transnational criminal organizations are affecting us. But we can, we can see that it is. And, you know, we've got to think differently. And what this will do, and I can tell you, as someone that has worked every level of investigations domestically and led programs to go after the cartels, is in, in the investigative model, there's nothing we haven't done. Nothing. I mean, there's nothing else you can give us. We don't need extra laws. That's not it. Uh, you know, we have laws on the books to put these people away for life, forever. The problem is the speed by which our investigative model works, and that's why the foreign terrorism designation is so important, because it's going to give us those authorities. But more importantly, George, it's going to give us the authorities to be successful and finally start winning against this problem. Gotcha. So, uh, in conclusion, because we've only got uh, a couple of minutes left, uh, what would you, if you were in front of the president right now, uh, and his intelligence leaders, what would you tell them? Right now, I tell them we need to we need to do this. They know we need to do this. I really believe that there is, you know, obviously some political things that have involved with this, and for legitimate reason. You know, the president has worked for some time to get this agreement with MCA. You know, we're just getting that passed right now. And I think that what's going to happen is we need to do this correctly. First and foremost, we designate them as terrorists. Second. We create good processes involving all of the Homeland Security enterprise, meaning, and what that really means is how are we going to implement this using assets that the U.S. government already has. Many people forget that prior to 9-11, we had already DEA, DEA task forces, local task forces, high-intensity drug uh, trafficking, known as HIDA groups, all over the United States, and the Office of National Drug Control Policy. We can use those assets, those already that the U.S. taxpayer, George, are already paying for, to take on this load. And really, those are old enterprises. You know, they've been doing the same thing since the 80s. They need to be upgraded. And and if I was looking at the president, I would say, use those assets that are already in play. Don't get the taxpayer to pay for anything else. And let's go with this new model, using that old enterprise to make success for the country in the future. 
you got it, buddy. Tell the folks how they can uh, follow you and read up on you, uh, uh, where they can find you. Yeah, sure. Um, I post on social media a program called Tripwires and Triggers, but you can find me at Jason, J-A-E-S-O-N-Jones.com. That's JasonJones.com. Excellent. Jason, thank you very much, as usual, for coming and uh, for being on our show and for uh, enlightening us, because uh, obviously you've got uh, you've got the uh, experience and the knowledge. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, George, thank you for that. But more importantly, it's for the country. And in 2020, we're going to get this done. We're going to get the authorities that the folks out there need who are the vanguards of this country. And we're going to make this happen. And we're going to save some lives. So looking forward to next year and going ahead and business thing in the hurdle and getting it done great once again folks we've been talking with uh, mr jason jones uh, border security expert this is george rodriguez el conservador on klup 930 a.m radio the answer all right folks once again george rodriguez el conservador talking to you on klup 930 a.m radio the answer and uh we've got uh, a gentleman who is an alamo descendant as well as a private citizen who's been very very involved in the whole issue of the uh of the new uh, design that they want to um put in uh, in uh, alamo plaza uh mr paul gescheidel and i wanted to get him on uh and uh chat with him regarding uh to give us an update of what he has seen uh, the last few uh, weeks, particularly with regards to the last meeting that occurred uh, with the uh, San Antonio, the city of San Antonio's uh, historical design and review commission. So, uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming on. Tell us, uh, Paul, what do you think? What did you think? Uh, or, or give us give us a a uh, uh, a quick little uh, review of what happened at the last uh, uh, meeting, uh, historical review meeting, and where you think this thing is going with regards to the Alamo, the Cenotaph, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the last meeting that we attended, uh, when we first got wind of the, the meeting being scheduled, the first things we had heard was that it was scheduled for 3 p.m. that day. As we know now, it ended up being scheduled for 1 p.m., and at the previous meeting, it was three minutes of talk time per person. We found out as we arrived, shortly before we arrived there, that it was going to be two minutes per person, so our time to speak was diminished. Uh, me and a lot of other concerned citizens, as well as activist groups, groups that uh, I'd formerly been uh, affiliated with, such as This is Texas Freedom Force, Rethink Nuremberg, the Alamo Defenders Descendants Association, we all kind of spread the word that that meeting was going to happen. So we could fill the room with people that had concerns and wanted to voice, you know, how they felt, either opposed or against, no matter what. And when we were there, I believe you're, you, you yourself were in attendance as well during the beginning of this last meeting. There was, I believe, up to 80 people that, or more that turned out. So much so they had to open up a second room for those people to be able to sit down. There was there was a standing room at one point. They kind of funneled other other people into another room. And what we saw was at this particular meeting, a full panel rather than the previous one where there, I believe, was two people missing. And overwhelmingly, whether it be people like yourself, uh, you know, media personalities that came in attendance, or if it was people who are uh, involved on the political spectrum like Representative Kyle Biederman, everyone seemed to be, for the most part, opposed to this. Furthermore, I would like to, you know, make point out that the Tapilam Kualatekan Indians, uh, or Native Americans, rather, sorry, uh, were in attendance and obviously are opposed to this plan as well. They themselves, as well as their attorney, uh, appeared and testified or testified in, against this plan. And there was, I believe, maybe six people total that turned out in favor of it. And those individuals that were there in favor have been consistently appearing at other meetings in the last two years, as well as in Austin during the bill testifying, you know, for HB 1836, Kyle Biederman's bill, as well as SB 1663, uh, Senator Brandon Creighton's bill, which was the Monument Protection Act. And they kind of echoed the same thing they've always said. Um, 
if you're able to pull up some of the footage, uh, you should be able to find some of the live feeds of that meeting. You'll hear them say the same thing, that they're in favor of it, that 500 feet is still a win, that it's still a good thing. And the reality is that this meeting that they presented, they actually, the people in favor of the Alva plan, uh, we believe it's Reed Hildebrand of the company that's handling it, uh, they gave less information. Essentially, a quick briefing, as if to say, you know, everyone involved already knew what was going on, and that just wasn't the case. A lot of people there turned out because they had no idea what was going on, and were obviously all in opposed to the moving of the cenotaph. Now, Paul, uh, from what I gathered, at least from what I saw, uh, and I did not, I was not able to stay for the entire meeting. From what I saw, uh, it seemed like the vast majority of people were in opposition. To uh, to moving the cenotaph, uh, to moving that monument, uh, did that uh, seem to has that seemed to resonate or matter to uh, the commission members at least at this point? No, and what's interesting is that I believe there were two votes that were in favor of tabling the decision at the previous meeting, and those votes switched over in favor of uh, granting the permit. So. Something happened in between, uh, in in the in the few days in between the two meetings, I guess, huh? Right, and again, they were what people don't may not know is that these individuals were all collectively briefed right before the meeting began. Now, keep in mind that the the decision was tabled on December fourth, and the second meeting was on December eighteenth. Any logical thinking person would realize that they had plenty of time to be briefed. Why wait until literally? before the meeting commences. Correct. The, uh, uh, for the benefit of the, of the audience, th- how far do they plan to move the cenotaph that is right there in front of the Alamo? Where, where do they plan to put it? From what we've gathered, because again, details have always been vague at best, what we know is that it's a 500-foot move, and it is in location roughly where the bandstand is currently. That is the ninth, I believe it was commissioned or dedicated in 1976 for armed forces. And that bandstand also will be moved to another park, which I don't think has been decided. As far as I know, it doesn't have a dedicated location for the bandstand to be relocated to. But that location is, if you've been in Alamo Plaza, it's in front of the Minger Hotel, and it is in the opposite end outside of the battle battle site or the garrison footprint, if you will, of the 1836 battle. So, therefore, it is being moved off of where the Alamo defenders were located. Now, what you as an Alamo defend, uh, a descendant of an uh, uh, as a descendant of an Alamo defender, uh, what uh, what is your opposition? What is your concern about the moving of this monument? It has always been the same for me. My ancestor, Squire Damon, is the first of my family to come to Texas, participated in the siege of Behar, and subsequently was part of the Immortal 32 who answered Travis's call during the siege of the Alamo. That is the only headstone that my family lineage has, figuratively. Granted, it is a monument to all the defenders, but it is as such. It was dedicated by Pompeo Capini to be a memorial to the defenders, and it is on the same level as asking anyone else's ancestors' headstone to be moved to a, you know, a quote-unquote more reverent location. You wouldn't ask this of anyone else for their ancestors' headstone or, you know, cenotaph, if you will, to be moved based on aesthetic value. Correct. What about what about the process? How how have you felt about the process? The hearings. The uh, citizen no, input. They're a joke. It's been ignored. Uh, anyone that actually has legitimate, you know, opposition to it, whether it be you know the taxpayer money being spent, or someone like me from a, you know, an ancestor's headstone point of view, or to the Native Americans who have their ancestors buried in, around it and all over the plaza, they've been ignored. So much so that when we went to Austin during legislation to testify. Not a single Alamo bill, not just the ones that dealing with monuments or the cenotaph directly, but any Alamo bill died in committee. It did not get passed. Not a single one made it to the governor's desk. Uh, it's been ignored across the board, um, you know, and it may be because some groups 
that were in attendance, you know, be it the Freedom Force or the Texas Nationalist Movement, was actually at, involved in testifying as a group in Austin. And it's very easy for people in favor of this plan who already are opposed to those type of groups to just paint them in a bad light. And I think that that may have played a factor. I cannot say on my own. I just think that in general, whether it be the Alamo meetings during the state legislature or in this case, the HDRC meeting, any opposition is just kind of ignored. It's just not paid attention to. And really upsetting for someone like me and others involved when this is the real only part of the plan that a lot of people have an issue with. Right. It's been ignored. It's, it, it boggles my mind and always has is why the Cenotaph was never considered to remain in place as part of the plan. Why was it always ever moved? We've heard from other people testifying that at one point it was considered to be in, I believe, Market Square, where the Benjamin Milam statue is. And that, I do agree, it has no relevance there. Absolutely not. But then again, why move it at all? And why not introduce a plan if you're going to spend this much money, potentially $450 million, why not have a plan that recreates most of the, of the Alamo footprint while keeping the Cenotaph in place? The uh, it, what uh, what do you th- see happening? What do what is the future here of this of this fight for the for for the cenotaph and the and the history of the Alamo? As far as I can, con- uh, at what we can do as concerned people people like myself, we will stay the course. We will maintain our fight, but it will be from a you know a legislative a legislative point of view. It will be appealing to the governor and the lieutenant governor because that's all we can do at this point. The governor alone can utilize his bully pulpit to stop this. And we are aware that both representatives and senators are opposed to this plan and have tried to go up through the chain of command and have subsequently been stifled in their efforts. Very interesting. That's very interesting that, that, you know, the the most important um, historical footprint in Texas, of Texas, uh, is being stifled. I don't. I don't understand that. Right, and you know what's even more upsetting is the elected officials who have claimed that any opposition to this plan is just a racist thing. Oh yes, it has yes. nothing to do with that. That's right. You know, the Alamo defenders were a very colorful bunch of people. You had Native Americans. You had Tejanos, Native Tejanos. You had Anglo's, of course. We all know that, and not just Anglo's from here in America, but from Europe, across the, across the pond. Yeah. And we do know that there were African Americans behind those walls as well. Uh, we've the only... Alamo Defenders Cenotaph re- represents every single one of them. That's right. That's and to right. say that this entire plan and any opposition to it is racist, that is just asinine. That's right. I think, it's, I think the, the, the honest situation is that they want to remake or rewrite history. Paul, uh, we've got to close here. Um, let me uh, let me tell the folks once again that uh, Paul Gashidel is a uh, who we're talking to is a is a descendant of an Alamo defender, and he's been very very active in uh, this uh, effort to uh, keep uh, the cenotaph where it is and to uh, not rewrite the history of the Alamo. And Paul, I want to thank you for being on our show. Absolutely, sir. Anytime. I much appreciate your efforts as well, and I, I was very happy to march alongside you. Uh, we will get you back That's on great. as this as this battle continues. Yes, sir. Hello, El Conservador listeners. If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez El Conservador and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you're interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. All 
right, folks, once again, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas, on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer. And uh, we've got my very, very good friend, Silvio Canto, from uh, Dallas. Uh, Silvio is a uh, well-known and published uh, uh, blogger and uh, political pundit, and uh, I love to reach out to him and get his uh, point of view on various issues, particularly here in Texas. Um, what I wanted to do here at the, as we're closing out 20, 2019 and getting ready for this big eventful 2020, um, I wanted to reach out to him and ask him about the prospects of the Democrats uh, nationwide and, and here in Texas. Because we keep hearing, folks, we keep hearing a lot about how uh, Texas is in danger of turning blue. And uh, both Sylvia and I have, uh, Sylvia and I have a, 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 a we have our doubts about that, and uh, I wanted to get to talk to him first of all <clears throat> about um, 2019 and uh, the Democrats' message uh, and their and how it's going to affect their prospects for 2020. So, uh, Sylvia, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking time uh, out of your busy schedule. But uh, you know what? What do you think? Uh, what about the message that the Democrats have? And uh, how how is it going to re- resonate in, in 2020, do you think? Well, George, thank you very much for the invitation, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to to your audience. Uh, look, I think 20, 2019 uh, was, a, was a year in which we saw, I think, a lot of confusion on the Democrat message. And as I look ahead to 2020, um, even though these predictions are sometimes hard to make, because uh, I simply caution people with two things. At this point of 2007, meaning at the end of 2007, nobody predicted a President Obama. And at this point, at the end of 2015, nobody predicted a President Trump. So these predictions have to be understood that things can change. There's still lots of balls in the air. But I feel very comfortable with making this. I believe that President Trump will be reelected. The only question I have at this point, George, is the margin of victory. Is it going to be similar to 2016? Basically, we're going to be up till 2 o'clock in the morning waiting for some states to come in. Or is it going to be a larger victory that could potentially include uh, returning the House of Representatives? That's where, I, that's where my, uh, my doubt is, uh, whether he's going to be – whether this is going to be 2016 or, or a much bigger margin – I think that every minute that goes by, I'm starting to move a little bit slowly into the bigger margin point of view. But one thing I want every Republican in Texas to remember, every conservative also, let's not get cocky and don't assume anything. You've got to get out there and turn out. So, you know, in order to win, you've got to turn out. So everybody's got to turn out. And if everybody turns out with the enthusiasm I, that I see, yes, I think it uh, could be a great year for the Republicans in 2020. But, again, you've got to turn out, guys. <laughs> Listening to me today, you've got to make sure you turn out. Nobody stays home on Election Day without <laughs> votes, uh, George. Yeah. Uh, tell, me, tell me, you recently wrote a, a very interesting article uh, on, the, uh, on, on American Spectator. And uh, regarding the, um, the, the Democrats' prospects and messaging, uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, it was American Thinker. Uh, I was American Thinker, not American Spectator. Oh, that's right, sure that's that, right. That I, that I, <laughs> Sorry. That got, it's American Thinker that, that I write for, but that's, that's fine. Not, not Spectator, but uh, Spectator is a great place, too. But American Thinker is the one where I spend my time writing. Um, I, I think their message right now, George, what I was trying to convey in this in, the, in this post is that they, they have a real problem right now, I think, because the party has basically been taken over by uh, by the left wing. And, and you see it in these debates, George. I mean, look at uh, the amount of time they're devoting to issues like abortion and, and transgenders and stuff like that. I mean, look, I mean, I... I understand everybody has civil rights and civil liberties. That's fine. But I don't think a lot of Americans are spending their time talking about transgenders. I just don't think that's an issue that people are that, what can I say, that uh, focused on. They're focused a lot more on other issues. So I think the party has been tilting to the left in a very dangerous way. And what, what I think is going to happen is that they're going to get to Milwaukee and nobody's going to have the majority of the delegates. And I think it's going to be a real circus. I really do. Uh, because you're going to have clashes between wings of the party, 
and it's going to look really nasty to the country. And if they end up nominating Vice President Biden, I wouldn't be surprised if they stick a real radical as a left winger. Uh, as a vice president, I mean, and so it, it's not going to be pretty. Whatever comes out of Milwaukee is not going to be pretty, George. That's my prediction. Yeah, and and you know, to uh, to follow up on that, the um, there was an article uh, this past weekend from uh, by uh, about should I say uh, Julian Castro, Texas's one of Texas's favorite sons in the Democratic Party, uh, and he's having a real hard time getting traction, even in the Hispanic community. And, uh, you know, he blames, of course, uh, the Iowa caucus for not being diverse. But uh, wouldn't you think it's his message? Look, the Iowa caucus, uh, this blaming the Iowa caucus, you're right, it is the message. But, you know, the Iowa elected or, you know, Barack Obama won in Iowa. So, I mean, uh, the idea that, that Iowa is too white well, Barack Obama won the Iowa primary or the caucus in 2008. So, I mean, the, obviously, Iowa can nominate or elect uh, Iowa Democrats uh, can nominate somebody. I think Julian Castro's message is that I think he made a huge mistake, just like Beto made a huge mistake. They decided they went too far to the left. And what I think this Democrat uh, debate or Democrat party reads right now is somebody... In the middle, somebody saying, hey, folks, you know, we can't go that far to the left because we're just making it easier for Trump to be reelected. And that's what's lacking. And Beto didn't do, didn't take the opportunity. Julian Castro didn't take the opportunity. I mean, the reason Julian Castro is not in the mix is because he couldn't get enough votes. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, if you cannot get enough Democrats to support you, well, you're not going to be on the debate. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty simple to me. And you're right. It's all about message. It's not about being Hispanic or being, you know, minority. That's just, that's just a, I don't know about you, George. You and I are both Hispanics. And nothing offends me more than Hispanics playing the victim and saying, oh, it's because I'm Hispanic. No, it has nothing to do with you being Hispanic. It has to do with your message. That's the problem, George. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. There's the, uh, the issue also, the, 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 the irony of uh, this past um, uh, debate that just went on where everybody, virtually everybody, was, uh, on the, that was on the, on, the, uh, stadi- on the stage there was white. Uh, again, you know, uh, Cory Booker and uh, Kamala Harris had a few things to say, as like uh, mimicking uh, uh, Julian Castro. But uh, it's very, very strange that we've we've got a, a Democratic Party that keeps screaming and yelling about color and gender uh, and other issues, other features, and you know they uh, they seem to have uh, at least two white male. Uh, heterosexuals running uh, at the top of the ticket, which is uh, Biden and uh, and Sanders. That's right, and 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 I and I think that you know the, you're right. I mean, people like uh, uh, the senator from New Jersey and the lady senator from from California. Their problem is not that they are black. Their problem is that their message didn't stick. I think in the case of Senator Kamala Harris, there were a lot of expectations that she was going to be like the Obama of 2020 in the sense of, you know, being this magical candidate. But no, she turned out to be a really bad candidate. And I think in the case of Booker, I, you know, he doesn't seem to be, I mean, again, they're all basically singing the same song. And, you know, I don't know, it's like they're singing doo-wop at a time when nobody listens to doo-wop. I mean, or something like that. I mean, I'm kind of dating myself here with (laughs) face. But I mean, it's like, you know, they want to dance disco, but nobody's dancing disco anymore. And I think that's their problem. They're not not even talking to Democrats, because I continue to say that there's a, a, a bulk of Democrats in the center of the country who are much more conservative than these candidates are. And you know that here in Texas as well, George. South Texas, a lot of Hispanics are very conservative. Yep. And they're looking at these at these debates and they're saying, okay, guys, I mean, I got it. You want to pander to transgenders, but you have to spend a whole segment talking about it. Yeah, they're even dist- oh. distancing themselves from them. I mean, uh, Congressman Cuellar, the Democrat from Laredo, is definitely has definitely distanced himself from, from, uh, from the presidential uh, debates. Absolutely. And I think that's uh, that's what, you know, one of the points I was making in that post you brought up, that uh, the the problem that 
I see for the Democrats in 2020, they were very united in 2018 because the only thing that unites them is their hatred of Trump. If you put 10 Democrats in a room and you say Trump, they all get excited. They're arguing with each other to see who hates Trump more than the other. But when they have to talk about issues, whether it's universal care, whether it's trade, whether it's that, there are major divisions within the party. And that's what's going to start coming out uh, in, in these primaries and, and upcoming debates, if they have any more, because, George, they're losing audiences. I, I think I mentioned before that their last three debates, they've lost audience. Yep, they sure have. They sure have. Amazing. People are tuning out. <laughs> Silvio, here at the uh, end, what would you, uh, last minute, why don't, what would you predict for, the, um, uh, for 2020 as far as uh, the Republican Party? Well, I think it's like I said, I think President Trump will be reelected. Uh, there's no question in my mind about that. But the question is, as I said before, is what the margin of victory is going to be. Is it going to be close like 2016 or a little, a little bit better? I personally think it's going to be a little bit better. I think the real one for me, and where I'm really hoping, my, my expectation is that, that we can at least get the House back. Uh, we only have to pick up 18 seats. And I think there's probably 20 Democrats out there vulnerable enough to make that happen. So I know President Trump is going to work on that. So we got to get the House back because once we have the House, uh, the impeachment spectacle that we saw will never happen again, George. Yeah. Tell the folks how they can follow you and where they can find you. Well, they can Google Canto Talk, C-A-N-T-O Talk, and that'll lead them to my, my blog and everything is there. Uh, and, you know, if they read American Thinker, I usually have something on the right-hand side of of American Thinker, a post uh, or so on the right-hand side, and I do that uh, pretty much every day, although for the next couple of weeks I'm taking a little time off and getting my batteries ready for 2020, George. We've got a lot of fighting ahead of us oh, in 2020, boy, don't so we? I want to get my batteries recharged and get ready for 2020. Silvio, thank you very much for taking time to be with us. This is George Rodriguez, El Conservador, on KLUP 930 AM radio in San Antonio.